0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January episode of Solidarity Is This. I'm your host, Deepa Iyer. If you're new to Solidarity Is This, this is a monthly podcast that explores solidarity practices to resist the xenophobia, backlash, Islamophobia, and racial anxiety in the United States today. You can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes And you can find additional information, including a solidarity syllabus, over at www.solidarityis.org. Before we get started with our podcast, I want to wish everyone a happy new year. I hope that all of you are having a peaceful start to 2018. As for myself, I had set some intentions for centering and grounding myself at the start of the new year. You know, with a vision board and all. But I have to say that I've been knocked off that center quite a bit already. The pace of the news, the sheer brutality of the events happening around us are too hard to bear and digest and process at times. So if you're in the same boat as me with respect to all of that, I want to say I feel you. I've been sitting with a book called Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown this month. And if you haven't read it yet, I encourage you to pick up a copy. There are some really helpful strategies and processes that Adrian provides which can help to center and recenter ourselves and our work in those moments when things are unraveling or seemingly falling apart. So we're recording this podcast a week or so before the one-year anniversary of the Women's March. You remember that, I'm sure. It's also the one-year anniversary of the inauguration of 45 and the set of policy directives that emerged last January that have affected so many communities through walls, bans, raids, and more. For those of you who might be interested, I wrote an essay at the beginning of the year about what we can learn from the solidarity movements of 2017, from here to stay, to no Muslim ban ever, to me too. Take a look at it over at www.solidarityis.org and let me know what you think. So for this month, we're going to be talking food justice and we're also going to be talking about the Me Too movement. Two different topics, you say? Yes. And that's because there is so much going on these days that I'm going to try and fit in two short segments into each month's podcast. We're going to start with the segment on food justice and sovereignty. For that, I'm in conversation with Leah Penniman, who's the co-director of Soul Fire Farm, based in Grafton, New York. Leah has been farming since 1996, and her work has been recognized by the Open Society Foundations, the Fulbright Program, and more. Soulfire Farm seeks to end racism and injustice in the food system. I'm really excited to welcome Leah to Solidarity. Is this? I have gotten to know Leah over the past uh, year or so, and I've just been so inspired by her energy and curiosity and unflagging commitment to Soulfire Farm, which we'll hear more about. So, welcome, Leah, to Solidarity is This. Thank you so much for having me. So, Leah, let's start out by actually talking a little bit about yourself, about your point of entry into the work that you're doing on food justice and food sovereignty at Soulfire Farm.
1: Well, it's really my personal experience with hunger and food apartheid that brought me into Soulfire Farm. I was living in the south end of Albany, New York, with my partner and our two very young children. And even though I had many years of farming experience and higher education, the geography of my neighborhood prevented me from easily accessing fresh, healthy food for my children. And so our family joined a CFA, a Community Supported Agriculture, and walked over two miles in each direction to go pick up this share of vegetables. And I would quite literally pile squash and potatoes on the lap of my 2 year old and have my newborn in the backpack and then walk all the way down to cook the food. And the price was exorbitant and really challenging for us. So our neighbors, when they found out that we knew how to farm, challenged us to create the farm for the people. And that's how the idea of Soulfire was born.
0: Wow. So, Leah, I know that we might be using, you might be using terms that folks might be unfamiliar with a little bit. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you talked about food apartheid. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like for communities around the country?
1: So right now in the United States, if you are a person of color, you are only 25% as likely as a white person to have healthy food in your neighborhood that you can afford. And so this system of segregation where some people experience food opulence and other people experience food scarcity, uh, where their communities are flooded with highly processed, fat and sugary foods that lead to diabetes and other chronic illness, that is food apartheid. And I prefer that term to food desert, which is what the federal government uses, because a desert is a natural phenomenon, um, and apartheid is a human-created system of separation.
0: So I think that's so important because I know that part of what you all are doing at Soulfire Farm is to really uh, acknowledge and validate and heal from the histories of systemic oppression, right? Racial and economic oppression that have displaced and disconnected communities of color from their lands, from access to food, from controlling or being able to shape the food system. So can you make those connections for us um, specifically around the systemic piece?
1: Our food system is not racist by accident, it really is by design. Mm-hmm. So all of the land upon which we grow our food is stolen from First Nations people. And 80% of the labor that grows our food is Latinx and Hispanic, even though only 2 or 3% of farm managers have that identity. You know, the wealth of this nation was built on the backs of enslaved Africans. And our legal system, even to this day, has codified That racism, you know, for example, in the New Deal of the 1930s, agricultural workers and domestic workers Mm. who were predominantly black and brown people were excluded from the labor protection. And many of those provisions are still on the books. And so that is why, you know, farm workers have different wages and don't experience overtime benefits or the right to unionize. That's why there's not child labor protections for people who work in farms and fields. And so we've inherited uh, this legacy, which is really designed to increase wealth and access for those who already have wealth and access in the food system and in the system at large.
0: And so how are the efforts that you all are taking part in at Soulfire Farm uh, really changing that system? How are you interrogating it and dismantling that system of oppression and displacement? And tell us a little bit about what those initiatives look like.
1: Well, one of the things that I'm excited about that we're working on right now is trying to reclaim land ownership. You know, in 1910, at the peak of Black land ownership, we'd scraped together our Sunday money as sharecroppers and amassed like 16 million acres of land, which is almost all gone. And there's a, a long legacy of, you know, USDA discrimination and lynching and racist violence that have stolen land from our people. And now there's a whole returning generation of Black and brown people who are excited to become farmers and reclaim rural spaces but are struggling to access the training, the land, and the resources to do that. And so we're actually working with a national coalition through the National Black Food and Justice Alliance to create Black-owned land trusts or Black-led land trusts that will help connect this returning generation of farmers to land ownership. So that's very exciting sort of at the macro level. Mm -hmm. What it looks like on the day-to-day at Soul Fire Farm is that we run training programs for returning generation black and brown farmers. And so for anywhere from a day to a week to an entire season, people come and learn how to tend the soil, how to use a tractor, create a business plan, uh, and how to access these federal and private resources in order to start their land-based and food-based businesses.
0: And do a lot of those folks go back to their homes then and begin to reclaim the land, as you say?
1: Absolutely. Some of the projects that we're really excited about include High Hog Farm, which is led by Keisha Cameron outside of Atlanta, Georgia. So she graduated from our Train the Trainer program a couple of years ago and has expanded a livestock operation and is now working to train other black farmers in her area to convert over to organic to increase their revenue. So that's one exciting project. Uh, there's also the Wild Food Community Farm in Healing Village in Millerton, New York, started by a bunch of our graduates. Um, That provides a retreat center and healing space for black and brown people to recover from racial trauma Mm
0: -hmm. Um, and
1: also is a working farm that sells garlic and mushrooms and Christmas trees to the community. And there are many, many examples. Some are farms, rural farms, some are urban farms, some are catering businesses that are reclaiming. Dominican, Puerto Rican, and Haitian cooking with a healthy edge. And then there's people who go into leadership in the nonprofit and public sector to try to change policy.
0: So I'm going to backtrack a little bit to ask you to break down this concept of the Black-led land trust, what that means, what that looks like, and why it's so important when you think about food justice and sovereignty.
1: So Black people, particularly in rural spaces, are being displaced from our lands at an alarming rate. In the Gullah communities, and the Sea Island communities that were once almost entirely Black are now only 10% owned by Gullah people. And so Mm -hmm. we need to quickly stem the tide of land loss and then start to reverse it. Right now, Black people own less than 1% of the nation's land, even though we make up 13% of the population. So the idea of a land trust is a community-controlled, nonprofit organization that holds land in common for the public good, and for environmental stewardship. So land trusts actually started in this country by Charles and Shirley Sherrod, who started the New Communities Land Trust in Georgia. They're a black couple that amassed over 3,000 acres of land that was shared in common by 500 black families and catapulted this whole land trust movement. And so the idea with having community land trusts is that we could buy up, Black land that has been foreclosed upon and is put on auction, which is the main way we're losing it right now, and then hold it in sacred stewardship while we make a match with a returning generation black or farmer who wants to steward it for community benefit. Okay. And there's only one land trust with that mission right now in the United States. It's the Black Family Community Land Trust, and they're way overburdened and overtaxed with what they're trying to deal with. So we need to proliferate that model.
0: So you also mentioned, Leah, a little bit about the policies that organizations are working towards when it comes to food justice and sovereignty at the national level as well. Can you share a little bit about what some of those initiatives are?
1: So just full disclosure, I'm not a policy expert, but it's become necessary for me to educate (laughs) myself and get involved. So um, we are part of three different policy platforms and help to craft them. the Heal Food Alliance, the National Black Food and Justice, Alliance and the Vision for Black Lives policy platform. In all cases, what we're essentially asking for is to invest in Black and brown leadership in the food system through land, through the SNAP program and access to food, through funding cooperatives and businesses, through free and universal education, and to divest from the policies and practices that are harming our communities. So right now, if you look at the Farm Bill, which is the biggest piece of legislation by dollars that we have in the United States, is investing disproportionately in industrial agriculture, which is poisoning farm workers and destroying the environment Mm -hmm. and loading our communities with commodity foods that are making us sick.
0: And I'm glad that you mentioned the Vision for Black Lives policy platform. We've talked about that often on our podcast. So I think it's another example of how the work that you're doing is linking up to broader racial justice, economic justice movements in the country, that it's not siloed. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about, you know, even as you uh, message or speak about your work. How do you see it in relationship to, say, you know, the movement to end police brutality or to dismantle the detention and deportation complex or even living wage efforts? How do you make the connections between what you're doing and those kind of racial and economic justice efforts that are happening in the country?
1: Yeah, something I love about the current movement is that we really don't see the divisions between these individual struggles. You know, it's the same White supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal beast that is undermining our food sovereignty and also undermining our education system and enacting this, you know, insane criminal injustice system. So in our messaging, certainly in our newsletters, we include links and encourage people to get involved with sister struggles all the time. But tangibly, we ask ourselves, you know, what can we as farmers do to support these intersectional movements? So, for example, there's a Victory Bus Project which is led by the Freedom Food Alliance that provides transportation between New York City and prisons upstate so that people can visit their loved ones. And when folks get on the bus, they're also given a package of farm fresh food uh, Mm -hmm. from our farm or one of the farms in the Victory Bus Collective. And they can bring that up and give it as a package to the person who's incarcerated, who's not receiving that fresh food, or they can keep it and feed their family. We also do a solidarity share where folks who are immigrants or refugees or otherwise targeted by state violence can get free or for food at very nominal cost from our farm that's delivered right to their home on a weekly basis. And we intentionally reach out and work with these communities that are targeted to let them know that, like, yes, we're a farm. Yes, we have this particular mission, but we see you and we're going to leverage our privilege and our resources to support you in the ways that we can.
0: And I know that you talked a little bit earlier about some of the sibling farms in other parts of the country, but you're also working in places or in connection with farms in Haiti, Puerto Rico. Can you talk a little bit about what those connections look like?
1: Yeah, I feel so honored and grateful that we get to work with, with our sibling farms in Haiti in particular. Um, my Mother's lineage is from Haiti, and so after the earthquake, my sister and I, along with other Haitian Americans, felt this imperative to, you know, do something. And it it sounds a little bit cliche and maybe even paternalistic, but we, you know, visited our homeland and we asked what was a way to help that didn't impose external will. Mm. And folks in the farming community of Comier and Leogan said, you know, we really would love you to help raise funds and bring experts and volunteers down to support initiatives that we've prioritized. And this community in Comier has needed, you know, irrigation, a new well system to pump clean water, mango tree planting, composting initiative. And so over the seven years since the earthquake, we've been going down once or twice a year, raising money and implementing these projects. And it's beautiful because the community there completely leaves them. They're completely autonomous. Mm. And so it's really a matter of what feels like international reparations for the pain inflicted on Haiti by the United States, um, which we benefit from here. And then in Puerto Rico, we have a, a sibling farm called Finca Conciencia in Vieques, and they're wonderful folks. It's very much like the soul fire of Puerto Rico. And since the hurricane, they have been providing paid work as well as food relief to thousands of people on the island. And so we're trying to leverage, again, our networks in the United States to transfer resources to the project that they have identified and that they are running.
0: Leah, as we close up the conversation, I want to ask you um, a couple more questions. One is, how can folks get involved, right? Um, There might be people listening who are learning about uh, food apartheid and food sovereignty for the first time. There might be others who want to get engaged, but they don't know how, and they're living in places not in New York, for example, tell us a little bit about how everyday folks can make a difference in, in terms of how they utilize and think about the food system generally to how they can actually support and get engaged with initiatives like yours.
1: You know, we all can take a stand and make a difference in terms of working towards food justice. And I encourage people to follow the lead of those most impacted by the issues, no matter what our geography. So a first step is to find out what's already going on in your area, particularly projects that are led by people of color and projects that are led by people who've experienced hunger and displacement and to ask what's needed. And sometimes that's not super sexy. It might just be filling up the coffee pot or doing childcare or providing Mm -hmm. transportation, but that's always a really good starting place. On our website, we do have a list of actions you can take in terms of you know, pressuring or encouraging your local schools and businesses and elected officials to make shifts in policy that will help more people get access to good food and good land. And then I think, too, you know, doing some self-education and self-reflection around ways to uplift our own personal food sovereignty. What are ways that we can choose health and choose connection to land and choose to honor farm workers in our day-to-day?
0: You know, I started off at the beginning asking you what your point of entry is into the work you're doing. And you talked about how it started in a very personal way with your family. And as we close uh, this segment, I want to ask you, what sustains you to keep going? You've been doing this work, I know, since 1996. And so what, it, what are the, the ways in which you sustain yourself?
1: Well, in some ways, I think it's just sheer stubbornness. You know, there are some <laughs> of us who really don't want to give up and we don't want to give in and we want to, you know, see our community to the other side of the struggle. So a lot of it is that, it's just grit. But I think also it's true that when I hear feedback from alumni and folks who've gone through our programs that being at Soul Fire Farm is a little taste of what it would feel like to be free, that it is An overflowing cup of resilience to be here on this land and in this community and learning the things that we have to offer. For me, that type of feedback reminds me that, you know, all of the long hours and the struggle and the frustration is really making a difference in terms of our our community agency and our community sovereignty.
0: For anyone who's met Leah, <laughs> it's very clear because it comes out of you. And again, Leah, thank you so much for your work, for your energy, for your commitment. It's such an inspiration. And um, I hope that more folks will learn about Soulfire Farm and the different initiatives, as you said, in the places that they live and educate ourselves about them. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you so much for including me in this powerful project. appreciate
0: it. Now we're going to switch gears, and we're going to talk about a movement that's captured all of our emotions, which is the Me Too movement, started by Tarana Burke, a Black woman. The hashtag Me Too is an individual and collective declaration of the shared experiences that women have with sexual violence, harassment, and inequality in every single sector and aspect of our lives. Recently, many women, particularly those in Hollywood, started a movement called Time's Up, which focuses on workplace harassment. But Clearly, there are many women, especially those in service industries, who are enduring harassment and inequity at even greater levels. And women of color are contending with violence in our homes, families, and workplaces as well. Joining me now is Shivana Jurawar. Shivana is the co-chair of Jahaji Sisters, an organization based in Queens, New York, She's also with the Center for Reproductive Rights and she's worked previously at the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum and she serves as a board member of the National Queer Asian Pacific Islander Alliance. Before we get started with this interview, I just want to provide a warning that we're going to be talking about some graphic violence in this particular segment. Shivana, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be with you.
0: So Shivana, one of the organizations that you're with that is based in New York City is called Jahaji Sisters, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the organization started and what are some of your priorities?
1: Jahaji Sisters started in 2007 when two young Indo-Caribbean women in New York City were killed in acts of gender-based violence. At that time, a number of us who knew each other, Indo-Caribbean women felt that these stories, even though they were on the cover of the Daily News, the New York Post, they were met with a real deafening silence from leaders in our community, most of whom were older men. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were outraged that no one was activating on this and speaking out. And so really what happened is we became the leaders that we needed In that moment, we knew that it was our time to step up and do something. And so we brought women together for the first time ever in a mandir, which is a Hindu temple, for the first Indo-Caribbean Women's Summit in that year. And honestly, we didn't know how many people would show up to talk about what was then an even more taboo subject, but the place was totally packed and it became clear very fast that One gathering, or even an annual gathering like that, was not going to be enough. This really needed to be a sustained effort, and uh, it needed to be an organization. And so Jahaji Sisters was born.
0: So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the Indo-Caribbean community, especially the community in Richmond Hill, and provide some background in terms of the history, right, of this community and the diaspora that is here in the United States.
1: I'm really glad you asked that because I don't think a lot of people know who Indo-Caribbeans are, so Mm -hmm. I'm always looking for opportunities to share. So although we as Indo-Caribbeans have Indian ancestry and, uh, you know, in many ways we are a part of the South Asian community, Mm -hmm. it's important to recognize that our history and, uh, consequently, who we are is very different from that of Indian-Americans We were actually indentured laborers contracted to work on plantations Mm -hmm. in conditions that were not so different from slavery. And uh, it was poor people and people that were living on the margins of society generations ago. This is in the 1830s, like sex workers and widows who migrated to the Caribbean that were brought over. And they were making that decision for many reasons. So some bought into the idea that they were going to the so-called land of El Dorado, this land of gold, right, where mm-hmm. they would no longer be impoverished. Others were coerced into signing labor contracts they couldn't read and didn't understand. And the women in particular, because it was so taboo for them to leave the home and there was a shortage of women, were kidnapped or manipulated. Into going. And for the most part, no one really knew what they were embarking on, how long it would take to arrive, how harsh the journey to the Caribbean would be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they were going to an entirely new continent. And so they were taken to countries like Guyana, Jamaica, Trinidad, and Suriname to work the sugar plantations there after it became illegal to have African slaves. And today, in the United States, our largest population is in New York City and especially in Queens. There's a really big diaspora community there. And in fact, according to the city's Department of Planning, more than 80,000 Guyanese, mostly Indians, from the Burby's farming region, lived in the connected Queens neighborhoods of Ozone Park, Richmond Hill, and Jamaica. And of course, we have people in other New York City boroughs as well.
0: So I was actually wondering, Shivana, you talked a little bit about when you were starting to talk about the Indo-Caribbean community, how the community is part of the broader South Asian community, but is also different, right? And you've shared some of those differences. I'm curious to hear how Jahaji sisters and other Indo-Caribbean groups are building some of the alliances. You know, given that this is a podcast on solidarity practice, I want to hear a little bit about how those alliances are being built as Uh, There is recognition of the very different histories of oppression, of migration that Indo-Caribbeans face, as opposed to, say, a lot of Indian Americans who have been in this country, especially since 1965.
1: So it's definitely happening, and I'm glad for it. I think it has to happen more. And uh, I also think it's important to know that, you know, one of the uncomfortable truths about our arrival as Indo-Caribbeans to the U.S., is that Indians from India distance themselves mm. from us. So, you know, instead of being met by community and solidarity, we've historically been shunned as part of what I think is the press to be seen as a model minority on the part of Indians. So, you know, South Asians didn't want anything to do with our proximity to Blackness because we're from countries with large Black populations that influence our culture. And uh, didn't want to be identified with a community that, you know, frankly, was not as wealthy as they were and didn't have all the trappings along with that. And so this kind of respectability politics takes back generations. So I think, you know, while we very much want to be included in the larger South Asian community, and to some extent we are, to really get there, we need to address the ways we have been excluded and to have that recognized, and there needs to be some healing that Mm -hmm. happens. You know, that would be my hope, that we can continue coming together and organizing together because we're impacted by the same injustices, and we realize we can be more powerful in doing so when we're united.
0: Yeah, no, I think you pointed out one of the key practices, or I should say principles of solidarity practice, which is the ability to acknowledge and validate different histories and not assume that they are the same or to flatten them. And uh, I think that that's exactly what you're talking about when you're talking about how South Asians who are not Indo-Caribbean can build greater unity and camaraderie with Indo-Caribbean communities. And I did see one, I guess, example of that. And I wonder if we can pivot to that a little bit, which goes back to the mission of Jahaji sisters as well, around the brutal murder of Stacy Singh on New Year's Day of this year. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you all have been mobilizing the community around that and the ways in which South Asian organizations, especially women's organizations, have stepped up in the wake of that horrific murder.
1: So we woke up on January first, New Year's Day, to hear the news that yet another Indo Caribbean sister was killed in New York. So Stacey Singh was stabbed to death by her husband, who then went to a nearby park and hung himself. And it was the first murder in New York mm-hmm. City of 2018, so it was a big story, lots of headlines. Stacey had two children, mm-hmm. one and five years old, who are now orphans, which really is one of the saddest parts of this story. You know, this is going to impact them, of course, for the rest of their lives. And the community has been outraged like never before. So we held a vigil in partnership with ten other community organizations, and it was held at the same Monday where we had our very first event ten years ago. And so, you know, that kind of has symbolic significance for us. Mm-hmm. It was a really large turnout, bigger than we expected. Over a hundred people showed up, including faith leaders, men, Black Caribbean women came out to show up in solidarity, and the family was. courageous, you know, even going through all that they did, they got up there and they they read a statement. And many women shared our own stories of abuse. And so it was just, you know, a really powerful coming together and a moment where everyone was so boldly saying, we have to stand up, we have to make sure that this does not happen again.
0: And have you found that, the broader South Asian community has also been uh, standing up in support. And, you know, I say this because, you know, folks might not be aware that most of the groups that work in South Asian communities around the country actually focus on domestic violence issues. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about whether we're making headway to eliminate this form of violence and what you're hopeful in terms of seeing in the future.
1: So one of the fantastic things that, came out of all of this as we were reeling from Stacey Singh's story was that South Asian Women's Organization put out a really beautiful statement condemning what happened to her and naming their support for Jahadi sisters and lifting up that Indo-Caribbeans are a part of their constituency. And that was huge for us because it meant that, you know, we're moving beyond invisibility and uh, we're building bridges. But to me, the most important thing we need to do is change culture. So that all people are valued equally, regardless of gender. The fact that society fundamentally believes men's lives matter more than ours is the root of the violence. We need to change that mentality.
0: Obviously, this is happening. And I think what you're speaking to in terms of addressing cultural shifts, cultural norms, systemic policy changes um, are really also part of the rhetoric of the Me Too movement and the Time's Up campaign, and it seems to be a space and opportunity for us to shed light on everything from workplace harassment to domestic violence to sexual assault. I'm curious to know how you and Jahaji Sisters view this movement. Do you see your communities in this movement? What are the possibilities and what are some of the gaps?
1: You know, we believe we need an army of storytellers speaking our truth, refusing to be silenced for real transformation to happen. And the Me Too movement has reinforced for us the power of personal narrative and played a role in inspiring more of our, our newer activists to open up about what they face. You know, so it's important that this is happening. However, at the same time, what I've noticed is that the Me Too movement and Time's Up have mostly focused on the experiences of white women and people with power, maybe in part because they're celebrity-driven mm-hmm. and in part because the pain of people of color is never really given the attention it deserves. And uh, it's focused mostly on sexual harassment instead of bringing in, I think, at an equal level, conversations about violence and gender-based murder. And it's important that activists have been able to bring the experiences of domestic workers and Mm -hmm. farm workers into the conversation through a lot of hard work, I'm sure, but I think there needs to be more. And we need to ask, who are the people most impacted? You know, who are the ones being killed? And then we need to center those voices, because when we can center the most marginalized and get them liberation, we're all going to get free, you know, and we serve immigrant women. Who are disproportionately impacted because of the fact that they live in the shadows, they're unable to report violence because they fear deportation. You know, trans women of color are being killed at alarming rates, and it seems like no one even flinches. So, in addition to the Alyssa Milanos and the Reese Witherspoons, I want to call for these faces and these names to be known too, so that we can get out of this cycle of spotlighting only certain
0: people's pain. Exactly. I completely agree with you. And, you know, I think in that vein, there's also been this firestorm around the story that came out this month about Aziz Ansari, which I know has struck a chord with a lot of South Asians. And I'm wondering if you've talked to people within Jahaji Sisters, or if you've been hearing about how South Asians are viewing this. Some people say that, you know, this story is trying to undermine the Me Too movement, which you just spoke about so eloquently. So I'm curious to know if you have any thoughts on it.
1: I think this is a moment for us as a South Asian community to begin getting past the hang-ups we have about sex and sexuality that hold us back from addressing what women face, right? Because if you can't talk about it, you can't solve it. I hope that this question of what to make of Aziz's sexual encounter pushes us to break that barrier so we can have the really important conversations about consent and women's autonomy over our bodies that need to happen. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, too, that, you know, for South Asians, I understand that we don't have a lot of media representation. I do. But we can't absolve him, and we can't shut the conversation down simply because he's brown and we want to see someone like us succeed. And uh, we also have to recognize that what he did is not at all uncommon. I would say it's par for the course, and no, it wasn't Mm -hmm. rape. That this kind of male textual entitlement is normalized, that the bar is set so low, does not mean that we shouldn't call it out as problematic behavior.
0: And I think you're so right that it is an opportunity to have some conversations that have not been had in this community I'm talking to Shivana Jorowar, and we've been talking about the work of Jahaji Sisters, which you can find at www.jahaji, J-A-H-A-J-E-E, sisters.org. And in the solidarity syllabus that will be accompanying this podcast, you can also find links to some of the resources and statements that Shivana has mentioned as well. So, Siobhan, as we close out the podcast, I want to ask you more of a personal question about what sustains you in this work and in this movement.
1: What keeps me going is love. Like, really, it is love for my community, love for the women around me and in my family, and love for myself, too, because at the end of the day, this work really is about me, right? Mm -hmm. I have also been a survivor of... uh, gender-based violence, and uh, these are all issues that are important to me because uh, I am personally impacted, you know? And so for me, I'm really fired up by the need to uh, make sure that we are cared for, that we are loved in our community, and I'm sustained by hope. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's really easy to get stuck in this mindset of, you know, there's just too much bad in the world. How are we going to overcome it? But if we don't have hope, we're, we're never going to get there. And so I'm a big believer in just, you know, remembering that everything that we need, the universe has got it for us. It's out there. We have infinite organizing power. We just have to believe and put our trust in it.
0: Well, I'm inspired by people like you, Shivana, and I'm so glad that you're in this work and in this movement. And thank you so much for joining me on Solidarity Is This. Thank you. I hope that you've enjoyed listening to Leah and Shivana on this month's podcast of Solidarity Is This. As always, you can find a solidarity syllabus with links and information related to our conversations this month over at www.solidarityis.org. You can also subscribe and download the podcast on iTunes. I know that Shivana and Leah would all appreciate you sharing this podcast episode with your networks and on social media so that their important work gets even more visibility. As we close, I want to return to a theme that we heard about throughout today's podcast, about attending to generational trauma and ancestral lessons. If you'll recall, I mentioned Adrian Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategy, at the beginning of this episode. Here is a passage and an invitation that Adrian provides in Emergent Strategy. It reads, I am living a life I don't regret, a life that will resonate with my ancestors and with as many generations forward as I can imagine. I am attending to the crises of my time with my best self. I am of communities that are doing our collective best. To honor our ancestors and all humans to come. Again, that is a passage from Adrian Marie Brown's Emergence Strategy. Take a look at Adrian's website, www.adrianmariebrown.net, for more affirmations, resources, and Adrian's own writing. Whatever the work is that you do, I hope that you are doing it with meaning and compassion. Thank you for joining me on this month's episode of Solidarity Is This. See you again in February.